Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. This is the first of what I think will be a two-parter, rounding out the year 2023. This is also my somewhat belated birthday episode, so I'm going to open a beer. That's right, a nice non-alcoholic Munchholm original alcohol frit ul. Ul makes it sound like I said wool. It's actually ul. I'm I'm still pronouncing that incorrectly. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So this will be my annual list of all the books I read this year, as well as some of my thoughts about them. And that will be part one, unless the book list goes really long, in which case I'll split that into two parts, uh, and do part two as part three. <laughs> this is already getting confusing. Uh, so basically, I'm going to talk about all the books I read this year, and then I'm sort of going to give you a, a state of the strangely. I'm not sure if you folks at home will find that interesting, but being that most of my listeners now are folks who listen through Patreon, um, I feel like you you might be curious because things have been very up and down here in Norway. Um, mostly up, but definitely some down. And I'll talk about that in part two. But first, um, I, I know some folks are just more interested in the book list. So I'm going to do that in this first episode. And then there'll be another episode, uh, sort of a companion piece about my year as I get deeper and deeper into this alcohol-free beer. I'll say this for Norway. The alcohol-free beer is significantly cheaper than the with alcohol beer, as I think it should be. If you're not buying booze, it should be cheaper. Like a bottle of Coke isn't the same price as a bottle of vodka. Although maybe it should be. <clears throat> anyway, uh, on to the list. Before I talk about all the books I read this year, I wanted to give an honorable mention to a couple of the films I saw this year. None of them were from this year. There was nothing in the cinema that I saw this year or that came out this year that I thought was particularly um, exciting or good or worth talking about. When I looked back over the list of movies I saw, I realized that, um, I yeah, I'd seen a few that were kind of exciting, but there was nothing that really blew my mind Um in terms of new stuff, there were a couple of old things. I saw a couple of documentaries, uh, Into the Inferno by Werner Herzog. Excellent documentary. Highly recommend. I also saw this documentary called The Sea Gypsies, colon, The Far Side of the World from 2016. I highly recommend that to anyone who would like to get a flavor of what it's actually like to be out on an adventure with strangely or strangely type people. It tells the story of a tall ship full of lovable morons, idiots, goofballs, whatever you want to call them, who sail to Antarctica without permits. And they have some adventures along the way. It's fantastic. It's a really wonderful little doc. You can tell that the young man who made it was very passionate about telling this story. And I think a lot of the real experience shines through. So I would highly recommend that to anyone who kind of wants a taste of the ramshackle kind of travel that I'm often on. Um, in terms of the film that made me laugh the hardest that I watched this year, it was probably the final five minutes of Phantom Thread. I cannot recommend that film highly enough. 
I don't want to spoil anything, uh, but if you're kind of on the fence about watching it, I'll tell you that, in my opinion, the film is a two and a half hour long shaggy dog joke. Highly recommend. Um, but my favorite film of the year, which also made me laugh incredibly hard, is called One Cut of the Dead. And just watch it. It's a 2017 film from Japan. Uh, you might think it's a zombie movie. And it is, but it's so much more. Uh, watch till after the credits. I, I can't... I've, I've, sh I've shoved this movie in so many people's faces. And not many of them get it, but the ones that do really get it. It's, it's a beautiful film that is a love letter to the kind of slapdash, like seat of the pants creativity that happens when you're just making something fun with your friends. So <clears throat> all of that out of the way, let's get to the books I read this year. I've done something different this year. I've, I've really tried to group things by author. So if I read a bunch of books by the same author, they're all grouped together. And then I've also shifted kind of my top eight ish favorite books of the year to the bottom of the list. I read, oh my gosh, I forgot to count this before I started, 69 books this year. Well done you, strangely. The sex number from the internet is what I've been told, 69. Um, yeah, anyway, <laughs> here we go. Uh, the books I read this year. The first book was Call Me By Your Name by Andre Osman. This was turned into a film at some point. It's a gay, sad, romantic love story, I guess. I I gotta be honest, I've read a couple of Osman's books at this point, and his prose is definitely above average, but it just... I don't know why they're so celebrated. I, I don't... I don't get it. There's sort of this like longing and like very frank writing about gay sex, but it, whenever he writes, him writing about gay stuff hits me the same way that Orson Scott Card writing about gay stuff does. It's like, it's not dangerous in this time to be writing about gay stuff. Like, like you're writing about it like, ooh, spicy, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't feel particularly revolutionary in any way to me. Um, I mean, again, I could be wrong, uh, but I just, it didn't really do that much for me. And it didn't start my year off the greatest either. Fortunately, my year came rolling back with De-Evolution by Max Brooks, which is a what-if scenario. What if a bunch of Silicon Valley tech bro, uh, terminally online programmer dudes uh, living in an eco-commune off the grid, suddenly lost the internet, and then also had to fight Bigfoots. It's so much fun. It is so, like, bananas in how seriously it treats its premise. This is by the same guy who wrote World War Z, uh, the sort of, like, realistic, um, realistically presented zombie uh, apocalypse book a few years back. And... He is so good at imagining disaster scenarios that the uh, that West Point has him come and lecture. So if you're looking for something with an absolutely bananas premise executed very, very seriously in a way that actually makes the bananasness more fun, I recommend De-Evolution by Max Brooks. 
The next thing I read, this I actually read on Christmas Day of 2022. I start these lists over on my birthday every year. So I read this on Christmas Day of 2022. It was Breakfast at Tiffany's by Truman Capote. I don't know what I was prepared for based on the film, but this was not it. It's a fantastic little short book, and um, there are some incredibly catty observations in it. Uh, stuff I still quote. One of my favorites is describing a foursome of people, and... Uh, it's something like, he's just about as out of place as a saxophone in a string quartet or something like that. It's very, very catty, very Truman. You're like, wow, Truman. A um, lot of fun. Uh, nothing particularly revolutionary in terms of the story. I think um, the sort of sad friend-zoned man. Um, you know, you could just see Michael Sarah playing the narrator character in a film, like a, a traditional film adaptation. But, you know, you got to think about when it was written. Um, <clears throat> moving on. Uh, Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. Uh, this is a book... This was, this was one of my favorite nonfiction books of the year. I definitely reference it a lot. Hari sets out on a quest to figure out why people's attention spans seem to be getting less. And he delves into everything from internet porn and streaming services to cell phones to the way children are raised. If you're kind of like looking for a big idea, what's wrong with the world, like zoomed out focus book, I highly recommend this. There's a lot of his own original research and ideas, but I think the conclusions he draws are pretty on the money. Uh, fantastic book. Although, as some of you who've listened to my earlier essay on being homeschooled know, I didn't totally agree with him on everything, but still a fantastic book. Um, so January and February of this year, I went on kind of a pulp kick. Uh, I reread all of the Robert E. Howard, Howard, Robert E. Howard Conan the Barbarian stories, the original um, uh, short stories that were all published in magazines like... Uh, Amazing Tales and Asimov's and all those. Um, and they were collected into three fantastic collections called The Coming of Conan the Sumerian, The Bloody Crown of Conan, and The Conquering Sword of Conan. And what's really interesting about the way these collections are presented is that they're presented not in a chronological order of Conan's life, which is how a lot of people traditionally like to look at the stories with the final story being old King Conan sort of fending off a, a attempt by a sorcerer on his life. And the first story being a young Conan just sort of walking into a civilization from the wastes. Uh, and what's, what's fascinating is that the old King Conan was the very first story that was published. And one of the last stories that was published is a very young Conan who's just kind of wandering around being sort of the classic barbarian adventurer, getting some treasure, uh, fighting some bad guys, you know, having an adventure. And by reading the stories in order of how they were written, you kind of see a crystallization of the character and what Howard seemed to think was most important about him, um, which is kind of this idea of Conan as a... Well, how would you put it? an idealized human being that he's sort he's very intelligent he speaks many languages he's quite respectful to people who are deserving of respect um he's very courteous actually um and yet he'll absolutely fuck you up if you mess with him um 
I found it really fascinating that how absent one particular aspect of Conan that I had just thought was a thing with this character, which is like he does sleep with many fine women in the stories, but the relationships are always a lot more consensual than I feel like the 1970s and 80s pulp cover Frazetta painting um, infused versions of the stories would later have where it's like, you know, he, he chops off a guy's head and then just like immediately sleeps with the guy's wife. Like that kind of like, I don't know. I'm not saying that it's entirely, I'm not saying like, wow, what a paragon um, at all. There's a lot of things in the stories that are <laughs> absolutely problematic and very uncomfortable, but it's just not quite the like, the version of it that I would have thought I was going to get based on cultural osmosis. Uh, that being said, uh, it uh, it is still absolutely uh, worth checking out, especially if you like adventure tales. And it very the 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 Robert E. Howard Conan stories very clearly influenced everything from uh, modern stories like more modern stories like Indiana Jones to um, the Lord of the Rings, but any fantasy really that came after Conan the Barbarian, I think was very influenced by it. I I don't know if I'm really going out on a limb to say that Lord of the Rings was influenced by it, but being that the Lord of the Rings was published some 25 to 30 years later, uh, after Howard published most of these stories, it doesn't seem impossible that there would have been some influence. But that's just my opinion. I could be totally wrong about that. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, very, very entertaining. I highly recommend them. They're a lot of fun. Just get them in those editions where they're published, um, in chronological publishing order, not, uh, in some sort of fictional character biography. Uh, speaking of pulp, in my opinion, the king of pulp, Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, this year I read A Princess of Mars. That's the first story, uh, the first John Carter of Mars story. And, uh, it was about what you'd expect. It was about uh, what I was expecting. Uh, I read this at some point in high school. I don't really remember reading it. And I enjoyed the Disney film that came out. I thought that was pretty cool a few years back. I think it was 2011 when that movie came out. Wow. It's been a minute. Um, and I got to be honest. Like I think the reason I didn't really remember reading this as a teenager is that it's pretty unmemorable. Uh, Tars Tarkas is super cool. The the Martian, the Green Martians, uh, which Tars Tarkas is their leader, they're super cool. They have like six arms. They're like ten feet tall, super badass. But in terms of John Carter himself and sort of the overall arc of his story, it's just very classic pulp. Uh, ditto for I also read Edgar Rice Burroughs' first two Tarzan books. I'd never read any of the Tarzan books back in the day, so to read these was so much fun. They are so kooky. They're so silly. So silly. And yet, like, they're delivered so seriously. It's They're a lot of fun. Uh, I would recommend them above A Princess of Mars for sure. They're short little books. You know, every chapter is like, 15 pages and it's like very very exciting and very uh <laughs> very uh very uh very nutty in a very fun way very much like a I don't know 
yeah, very silly. Of, with all of the attendant problematicness that you would expect for a from a story about a young white dude uh, growing up in Africa and being super good at the Africa. Uh, if you want a version of the Tarzan story that has all of the coolest bits from the books and uh, has sort of engaged with some of the problematic elements and recontextualized a lot of it, I highly recommend the Tarzan film from a few, few years ago starring um, Alexander Skarsgård. Whatever, the, the young Skarsgård, the one who was in The Northman. He plays Tarzan and uh, uh, Margot Robbie plays Jane and Samuel Jackson is in it and also Jman Hansu and uh, and Christoph Waltz. It's, it's an absolute banger of a film. I don't know why it didn't become popular. I wish that that movie had become the Marvel Cinematic Universe and we'd gotten like a bajillion Tarzan spinoffs. And then an inevitable Tarzan crossover with like a John Carter. Yeah, it just would have been so much better. Um, yeah, go check out that movie. And the Tarzan books, super fun. Uh, not great, but fun. Uh, decidedly less fun was The United States of Anonymous by Jeff Kossoff. Very serious nonfiction book about the history and uh, culture around anonymity in the United States and a little bit around the world and sort of how that anonymity culture interacts with things like policing, political freedom, freedom of speech, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Really interesting book, very timely and very interesting for the world that we live in now. Don't know if that would be your kind of thing, but... If you're interested in uh, learning about the history of anonymity culture in the United States going all the way back to the Revolutionary War, check it out. Very fascinating and uh, a lot of interesting things to say about the potential future of Internet culture. Lost City of Zed by David Gran and also The White Darkness by David Gran. This is also the guy who wrote... Uh, believe he also wrote Killers of the Flower Moon. Did he? I need to I need to look this up now. Killers of the Flower Moon book. I'm I'm, I'm doing it. I'm uh, I was gonna say I'm googling it. Then I was like I'm not googling it. I'm binging it. And then I realized like I'm not binging it. I'm uh, I'm duck duck going it. But, uh, well, the internet's not working right now, so what are you going to do? Uh, huh, that's too bad. Anyway, I'll keep going. I don't care. I don't need the internet to have a good time. Yep, it's all right by me. So, uh, anyway, David Graham. He wrote, a, both of these are nonfiction books. The Lost City of Zed is about a doomed expedition into the depths of the Amazon, and The White Darkness is about a doomed expedition uh, by a man who attempts to be the first person to traverse Antarctica solo. They're fantastic books. Somehow Gran has a, an ability to write about what should be very depressing in a way that captures the reasons that people go out to do these things. I think something that is very, you know, one of the things that I think writers who write these nonfiction expeditionary disaster books, uh, I'm also thinking of uh, the author of Into the Wild and Into Thin Air, John Krakauer. 
uh, is trying to capture is like a, an understanding of why someone would do this and what pulls them to these places and why these things are interesting. And David Gran is probably the best at capturing that that I've found. His books are really compelling. They almost read like Indiana Jones style adventure tales, even though they're nonfiction. Um, if you're looking for nonfiction stuff that really swashes a buckle, I, I, I have a hard time thinking of something better than David Grant. So his, his stuff is great. Speaking of great, this next book was a lot of fun. It's called Danger in the Cards by Michael McDougall, which includes possibly my favorite opening sentence of any book I read this year, which is, my name is Michael McDougall. And I am a card detective. Uh, and it's a, it's a book about a man, uh, I believe in the 1920s, uh, writing about his exploits, catching card sharps and card cheats and, and people cheating at various games of chance all over the United States. He's sort of a, you know, it, I mean, it's his own story in his own words, and he's obviously self-aggrandizing a bit, but he comes across as kind of a, sort of a, a Agatha Christie type character is just like always like being that I was dining at the same club I offered my services to sniff out the cheater uh it's a lot of fun his his writing voice is very unique and uh much like the book I read last year you can't win by Jack Black this is very much uh of a, a very particular era and style of writing that we don't see a lot of anymore um and it's really fun. There's a, there's a very different kind of self-aggrandizement that comes across when someone writes an entire book as opposed to someone who's just always talking shit on uh, Twitter or something like that. It's, it's much more likable and very delightful. Speaking of delightful, the next book I read was called Everything Sad is Untrue, A True Story by Daniel Nayeri. This book is a... It's, it's, it says a novel... But then it also says a true story, and it it's very clear from the author's note that this is based very much upon his own life, being an immigrant coming to the United States from uh, Iran and attempting to immigrate. And it's this really wonderful thing written sort of in the style of, um, uh, what is that movie? Jonathan Safran Frohr, incredibly cloud and... <laughs> incredibly loud and extremely close or extremely loud, close... Close lad. It's 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 a child narrator, uh, and the author does a really excellent job of capturing a child's narrating voice, or at least a literary version of same. And uh, yeah, it uh, it's really lovely. I read this while I was staying with an Iranian friend down in Los Angeles, and I was constantly reading parts of it to her and uh, getting certain uh, certain aspects of Iranian culture from the book confirmed. And then getting to experience some of them when we visited her mother. Uh, so I hi highly recommend this book. It's it's difficult and and definitely depressing and sad at times, as many um, as many books with titles like "Everything Sad Is Untrue," a true story, uh, would be. But the overall impression by the end of it is a very um, uplifting one, and I recommend it. Uh, speaking of things that are not uplifting, The Tree Thieves by Lindsay Bergen is a true crime book about tree poachers all over the world. People who chop down trees illegally, uh, people who sneak into protected groves and cut down uh, trees that they shouldn't be cutting down, people who illegally log, that sort of thing. It is absolutely fascinating. 
one of the things that I think is often missing from true crime books is a reckoning with sort of, I guess, the class, the elements of class that would make someone commit crime or make someone feel that committing crime was their only option. And Lindsay does a great job of capturing that in her book. Um, especially she does a lot about people who illegally log in the Redwoods area of Northern California and sort of really wrestles with the kind of poverty that some people live in that would make them um, feel that this is their only option while also not completely excusing crime as being poverty-based. So, you know, some of these people also have drug addiction or they just don't feel like working. There are some people like that. Uh, and she does a great job of sort of spotlighting all these different aspects of illegal logging while also making it a really interesting story, kind of a murder mystery. This one definitely belongs with a book I read last year, and I'm totally forgetting the title. The Falcon Thief, I believe is the name of the book. Um, sort of another kind of really strange true crime thing that you may be completely unaware of. There's a whole underground world of people <laughs> selling uh, poached wood. Uh, really, really fascinating. Uh, speaking of fascinating, I read a few books on parenting this year. Uh, and one of them was Hunt, Gather, Parent by Micheline Duclef. Uh, Micheline Duclef, I think is how she pronounced, pronounces her name. Um, this amazing. I wish that every, I wish that my parents had read this book before having me and I wish every parent would read this book. In terms of communicating a lot of... Over the years, I've developed a lot of opinions about how one should interact with and raise children. I, I think it's inevitable. Uh, if you are a human being on planet Earth and, and, and you were once a child and now you're not, or if you, you even are a child, you have opinions about how grown-ups should interact with children, how parents should interact with children, things like that. And I've never found a book that hews more closely to sort of my, a lot of things that I've always felt in my gut, but have never been able to uh, state in words. And yet she manages to with this book. She sort of looks at several cultures around the world, like the Inuit in Alaska and the Hadza in uh, Central Africa. I think it's the Hadza. I'm going to feel really bad if I got that one wrong. Uh, and, and sort of examines their parenting practices. Parenting practices that seem shocking to regular North American uh, parenting ideals, I think. But the book is fantastic. She makes a really strong case for some of the stuff that she advocates. And as I said a moment ago, I I am super into what she has to say. It's it's not, she doesn't have a lot of easy fixes, but she does have some personal success stories and some, some interesting perspectives, I think. Uh, I, highly re I, I highly recommend it. Uh, if you have to interact with children at all in your life, this will be very useful. Uh, not necessarily very useful, but something I love. Uh, every year I read a massive, autistically detailed, thousand plus page history on something this year, it was Richard Rhodes's The Making of the Atomic Bomb. Oh my gosh. Uh, if you want to know why I thought the Oppenheimer movie really didn't make the most of its potential, uh, just read this book. 
If you want to know why I think human where I think humanity went wrong in the 20th century, read this book. If you want to know what I think is the coolest single scientific achievement of the 20th century, read this book. If you want to know who I think are some of the weirdest people to ever collect in one place in the 20th century, read this book. It's it's a really really interesting book. It's really really beautifully structured. It is one of those incredible works of nonfiction and history writing that manages to have a really strong opinion about its subject and the meaning of the history that it is telling you without the author ever inserting personal commentary into it. We live in such an age of people having personal opinions about everything. You, you read a, a book, um, I mean, the, the previous book I just mentioned, Hunt, Gather, Parent by Micheline Duclef. She inserts herself into every aspect of the narrative and tells you about her personal reactions. And um, Richard Rhodes doesn't do this in The Making of the Atomic Bomb. He is not present as a character in the way that had this book been written today, the author absolutely would be. And yet, because of the way he structures the book, he absolutely makes a thundering point about the use of atomic weapons and sort of their potential for reshaping humanity for good or ill. A fantastic book, definitely worth a read. Much more interesting to read about the Manhattan Project from a much uh, wider lens. Uh, Oppenheimer is an interesting figure, but he is by far... He's not even, he's maybe in the top 10 most interesting people related to the Manhattan Project. I want a Leslie Groves movie before I want an Oppenheimer movie, but this is the world we live in. So, uh, <clears throat> speaking of interesting figures, I had never heard of Brian Phillips, but his book Impossible Owls really came out of nowhere for me this year. Uh, I just kind of found it in a used bookshop, read a couple pages, and was instantly hooked. Uh, in theory, all the stories have something to do with owls, but there is everything from a story of a UFO convention in Roswell, New Mexico, to a meeting with a sumo wrestler in Tokyo, uh, to uh, his attempts to get something more out of Wrath of the Titans, the uh, what, 2012, 2011 remake, um, by taking uh, Vicodin before he goes. It's fantastic book some really really beautiful nonfiction prose if you're a fan of uh oh my gosh i'm totally barry lopez <laughs> i'm really happy that i'm able to recall most of this especially because the internet's down see this is you're getting to witness a non-internet enabled strangely right now so you know there you go ah, sip a beer in celebration for that one uh yeah if you like the writing of barry lopez or if you're just sort of a, a fan of nonfiction, um, long-form essays, David Sedaris would be another um, that comes to mind. Um, Jill Tolentino. Uh, yeah, uh, this is a really, really fantastic collection. Impossible Owls. Uh, some of these stories appeared previously in magazines. They're all definitely worth a read. Mind of the Raven by Brian Heinrich. Or, sorry, Bernard Bernd Heinrich um, is a wonderful book all about ravens. 
everything you've ever wanted to know about ravens, or sometimes people call them wolfbirds, is in here. And uh, I'll just, I'll leave you with this. The book made me want to go climb up a tree and steal a baby raven from a nest and raise it as a pet, even though he really does a good job of communicating to you all the reasons that that is a bad idea. Uh, this spring, I went to the Center for Land Use Interpretation in Culver City, California, and saw a fantastic exhibition about uh, hydroelectric storage reservoirs. And they also have a small bookshop there at that museum. Uh, so I bought a couple of zines by an organization called Temporary Services. I've never heard of Temporary Services. It's apparently a couple of guys operating somewhere in the Midwest. I, I don't know. But they, uh, the two zines were the Book Waste Book and the Self-Sufficiency Library. The Book Waste Book is a zine published by a couple of zine publishers really wrestling with, even though they're sort of this underground punk indie DIY reduce, reuse, recycle vibe, they're still also contributing waste and and creating waste in the environment and and you know they have offcuts they have extras they have things they trim they have misprints and so really kind of grappling with the numbers around those things and the footprint that they leave in the world it's a phenomenal book uh little little zine uh, highly recommend anything from temporary services based on the two things i read the self-sufficiency library is just a book list of about a hundred books that they think would be useful to someone who wants to be better at being more self-sufficient. Not necessarily in an off-the-grid, um, Jesus, guns, and America kind of mentality, don't tread on me mentality, but in a sort of like not wanting to be dependent on big corporations and faraway factories to take care of you. It's a, it's, It's interesting to me how the people who get into self-sufficiency in a community-minded way, like Temporary Services' uh, book about the self-sufficiency library or the self-sufficiency course here at the Folk High School, really almost end up... How I've, I've seen this about three or four times now. The people who get into self-sufficiency in a community-minded way, they almost end up reinventing the Amish community standards. Uh, in short, Amish communities aren't against all modern technologies. They're just very leery of things that tie you to something far away that you can't interact with or influence and that you are only being influenced by in one direction. So that includes the electricity getting piped into your home. When you have to generate your power on site, um, you know, using a windmill to power a, an air compressor that you use to run your blender or your electric mixer or whatever, um, you have to reckon with all the steps within your home in one place. And it keeps your focus in the home. Even if you're getting just electrical power from outside the home, you have to, you're beholden to something hundreds, if not thousands of miles away. And that does change your outlook and it changes your focus from what is immediately next to you. I'm not saying that's necessarily a better way to live, but it is something that I understand the attraction of. Uh, speaking of something I don't understand the attraction of, The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell. <laughs> uh, 
this is the classic story of a man shipwrecked on an island who finds out that the eccentric baron of the island hunts the most dangerous game, man. And it's sort of a cat and mouse story. There's some reverses, some surprises. Oh my goodness, it's a big twist ending, da da da. You've heard this story a dozen times and you've probably seen it um, retold in everything from Buffy the Vampire Slayer to The Hunger Games. I think there's even an episode of Joss Whedon's Dollhouse. Remember that? Dollhouse? Whatever happened to that? Dollhouse. Hmm. I wonder if that show holds up. Probably not. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Classic story. Nothing really mind-blowing there. Lots of fun. I uh, read that one aloud while we were on tour to the rest of the band. H.P. Lovecraft, Against the World, Against Life, by Michael Hulenbeck. Hulenbeck. Uh, Hulenbeck. Anyway, I, I can't say his beautiful French last name, but H.P. Lovecraft, Against the World, Against Life, is a book-length essay wrestling with the legacy of H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, really, really paying attention to the positive things that Lovecraft contributed to the genres of science fiction and fantasy and horror while not shying away from his darker side, his racism, his misogyny, his problems. And I think it's a fantastic piece of writing. For anybody who's having trouble with how do we separate the artist from the art? How do we engage with a piece of art that we love that is written by someone a little problematic? This essay is a must read. I highly recommend it. Uh, I also read Starfish by Peter Watts. I'll have a lot more to say about Peter Watts later. He is on my favorite books of the year. But suffice to say, Starfish was an earlier book of his written some decade before his breakout hit, Blindsight. Uh, and it is very much uh, an early 90s tryhard cyberpunk. Uh, and... Uh, it was entertaining as an artifact, an earlier work by an author I really like, but it's I don't recommend it. Uh, read Blindsight. It's a better book. I'll talk about it more later on. I also reread, for the first time in <clears throat> 20 years, The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. The whole thing, and the appendices, of course. And I had an amazing time. It is so good. I cannot believe how good it is. I am angry that I have wasted my time reading any other fantasy novel ever. I think, like, genuinely, if I want a fantasy novel with elves and trolls and wizards and goblins and all that shit, I'm just going to read Lord of the Rings again in a year or two. It is so good. I, I, there is nothing I can say that will add to the reams of paper, the forests worth of paper that have been squandered by other more talented people telling you that it's good. But it's very good. It has a lot to say about human nature and interpersonal relationships and how we confront evil and how we live in troubling times. And I couldn't believe how much I needed it right now and how much it really did for me to read it. So yeah, check that one out uh, if you haven't in a while. If you've only ever seen the movies, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Read the books. They're so good. 
and they're so lovely and they have some absolutely beautiful things to say about the nature of the fight between light and dark. Oh man, that beer is coming back up. I'm trying not to burp into the microphone right now. <laughs> Next up, Sleeper Agent by Anne Hagedorn. This is a book about one of the Russian un deep cover agents who managed to sneak into parts of the Manhattan Project and sneak out vital information to the Russians. Uh, it's a great book. It's an another piece of true crime and history that reads more like an adventure tale. Super great, super fun. Read it. If you like Indiana Jones or The Americans or good books about history, this is for you. Read The Sleeper Agent by Anne Hagedorn. My second favorite children's picture book of the year that I read was Old Wood Boat by Nikki McClure. It's about a family restoring an old wooden boat. Uh, I believe the author lives somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I borrowed a copy of this from a friend who lives in Olympia and wow. Yeah, it's beautiful. I it's I almost bought a copy of it to bring here to Wooden Boat Building School because it just really captures this idea of getting a boat back in the water or getting a boat in the water for the first time. And uh, it's a lot of fun. Speaking of books about boats that are a lot of fun, I read the first two volumes of a manga called Vinland Saga. <laughs> and uh, I just realized that I did not write down the author's name. But uh, I'm sure you can find him if you look up Vinland Saga. Fantastic stuff. Uh, really fun. Really worth the read. Uh, you know, it's a weeby Japanese take on Vikings. And it's super fun. Uh, I have a story about my uh, exact interactions with Vinland Saga. But I will leave that for the story portion of the podcast in, in the next episode. So for now, let's move on. Speaking of boats, I read, and I've never read these before. I read Master and Commander, Post Captain, HMS Surprise, The Mauritius Command, and Desolation Island by Patrick O'Brien this year. These are the Captain Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin books, of which there are, I think, 20... 20 and a half. There's a, there's a partially finished manuscript that was published posthumously, number 21, uh, that I, I'm, I'm going to read. I am full steam ahead. I'm going to read all of these. Probably my one of these next year will have me talking about 15 more books. Uh, they're just good old-fashioned swashbuckling sea adventure tales that are a lot of fun. I highly recommend uh, if you're into sailing or pirates or anything like that, these are super fun. And uh, that film, the film from 2003 starring Russell Crowe is spot. It's a spot on adaptation of what these books are. So if you enjoy that film, oh boy, howdy, you've got 20 whole books of that content to, to get to get rolling with. Uh, check check it out. Uh, the audiobooks are also phenomenal. The guy who reads them really captures the characters. Quite, quite sound. Really round, rounding thump of a reader. Uh, speaking of books about pirates that aren't fun, Pirate Latitudes by Michael Crichton. What 
a disappointment. Granted, I haven't read any Michael Crichton in over 20 years, so my mileage may really vary. Uh, I think this was also published posthumously. So there was a brief period after his death where like everything that he had scribbled on a cocktail napkin was getting put between two bound covers and sold as by best-selling author Michael Crichton. Um, it is interesting to, to read that you could read it and you could tell that some parts were definitely his style and his prose. And then some parts were just like, come on. Um, it's obvious why he got interested in this particular era of history. I, I think if you're interested in this particular thing, though, there's a much better book on the same period of history that's nonfiction called Empire of Blue Water. Much better book. Uh, I highly recommend that over Pirate Latitudes by Michael Crichton, which uh, honestly, it's <clears throat> it's right up there with Call Me By Your Name for books that I just am almost, almost irritated I read this year. Not the worst book I read this year, but it's up there. Uh, if you want a good book about pirates, I recommend The Pirates of Somalia by Jay Bahadur. This is a nonfiction book about Somali pirates, and uh, it's very topical, it's very now, and it really, really gets into, similar to the, the, um, the, the book I mentioned earlier, The Tree Thieves, about illegal logging, this really gets into the heart of why these guys are getting in these little open boats and attacking uh, tankers and cargo ships in the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. Fantastic book, full of some really interesting adventure and uh, a lot of really, really uh, surprising things, I think. Kind of, if, if your only knowledge of these is from Western media accounts of ships getting attacked, uh, hearing about these pirates from someone on the ground who's actually hanging out with them and chewing uh, cachaça, it's a very different, uh, sorry, chewing cot. Cachaça is what they, as a type of rum, Cot is the leaf that the pirates all chew. Uh, is a it's a it's eye opening. Um, yeah, it might be my favorite in the now piece of reportage I read this year. Really, really fantastic. Uh, <laughs> all right, uh, I read four books by a man named James Howard Kunstler. They are a series. The first was a world made by hand followed by The Witch of Hebron, then A History of the Future, and finally The Harrows of Spring. <sighs> I've described these to my friends as the boomer apocalypse. These are clearly written by a late middle-aged man who has a very specific idea of kind of how the apocalypse will be and what type of people will do well in it and has some very specific ideas about culture and the way things are going. Um, but they're very idiosyncratic ideas. I, I, by the time I finished the series, I really did not come away with a particular... I, couldn't, I, I wouldn't be able to peg this man's politics. So that is an interesting thing. It's not like he's very specifically right-wing or lefty or anything like that. Um, and the books do have one of the the one thing that the books have that I think is really fascinating is that the apocalypse is very slow. 
it's they're post-apocalyptic but there was no big single event that happened everything just sort of ground down to a halt the supply chains all dried up and so people just kind of had to start making do with what was right next door it's a really fantastic book uh in terms of like that the the premise is really fantastic the first book i should say but nothing that he writes in the following three volumes really expands upon it that much um there's some kind of interesting light fantasy elements that sort of tie things together but i honestly if you're into post-apocalyptic people building communities and fending for themselves books dies the fire the first three books of that series are a much better bet they're a lot more fun um and I believe that the author of Dies the Fire has actually um, met uh, at least one, um, <clears throat> let me check my notes here, yeah, woman. So there's that to recommend it as well. Uh, I read those four books by James Howard Kunstler because they were mentioned in another book called Bunker by Bradley Garrett that I'll get to a little bit later. Uh, next up, I have How the World Really Works by Vaclav Smile. Smilev. Vaclav Smile. Uh, this is a really fascinating book about looking at statistics and numbers and trying to help the reader understand them. So much of how we view the world and think about the world is so wrong. Um, there was an, another book, uh, Factfulness, that I read last year that had kind of a similar thing. But uh, How the World Really Works is a really, really interesting look at the dependencies that human beings have on different factors uh, in the economy and um, sort of the, the things that are keeping the human project alive and what would actually be needed to change those things to be more green and energy efficient. Uh, it's at times depressing, but it's also very clear-eyed and has a very, I think, um, even-handed way of dealing with a lot of this stuff in a world that is so absolutely just completely taken over by noisy uh, pundits either for or against different types of green energy or fossil fuels or whatever, this guy just really seems to be looking very clear-eyedly at the maths. And that is definitely worth recommending always. Uh, next up, Manifest Destiny, Volumes 7 and 8 by Dingus, Roberts, Guinea et al. Oh boy, howdy. I don't even know how to summarize this series. These were the last two volumes. I just finished the series. It, it just finished being published, I think, late last year or very early this year. And I finally got my hands on the last couple issues. Um, this was a comic book series that I supported from issue one. I bought all of them individually through a local comic shop. I'm really glad I did. It's a super weird story. Uh, basically, the Lewis and Clark expedition, as you've heard of it before, uh, traversing North America under orders from President Jefferson to try to reach the headwaters of the Pacific, find the Inland Passage, blah, 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 blah. Coming back, there's sort of the first really uh, European documented exploration of the interior of North America, all that. 
Except in this telling, there are also giant monsters and they have a secondary secret set of orders from President Jefferson to eliminate the threat of the monsters out there on the plane. So there's giant cyclopses and uh, were bison and weird bird lizard people that are cannibals and all kinds of... It's, it's messed up and weird and goofy and silly, but also somehow ends up being some really interesting commentary on westward expansion and what it does to people. And, uh, it's, it's a, it's a rollicking read. It's at times swashbuckling and exciting and at times incredibly depressing. And it ends on a note of, uh, I would say it ends on a very frustrating note as I believe the creators intended. And it's the kind of thing that sort of kicks around at the back of my head a lot. Uh, I think about it more than I thought I would when I started reading it a couple years ago. So your mileage may vary, but if Lewis and Clark plus monsters sounds like your thing, check it out. The arts, the art is also very, um, very good. I, an art style can make or break a comic for me. Uh, great example of a comic I just can't get down with because the art style is Saga. I just, I really tried with Saga. I tried for a long time. I like BKV, I like a lot of his stuff, but I just couldn't get down with that art style. This is an art style I can get down with. It's um, um, probably my second favorite comic that I read this year uh, after uh, Harrow County. I read the first two volumes of Harrow County as well, which for some reason I don't have on my list, but uh, those are also fantastic. Check out Harrow County. Don't know anything about it going in. Just go read it. It's super messed up and creepy, and it has some of the best art around. Uh, and uh, yeah, I just just go go check out Harrow County. The art is done by hand, by human hands on paper. That's probably why I like it so much. Uh, Harrow County. If you if you like uh, HBO's Carnival, go read Harrow County. You're welcome. Moving on. Uh, I read the first three Dune books, Dune, Dune Messiah, and Children of Dune by Frank Herbert. Uh, Dune sucks. Yeah, I said it. Dune sucks. Unless you read Dune and Dune Messiah as a single book. In which case, it's fucking awesome. Uh, Dune is just a bog-standard traditional hero's journey about young Paul Atreides getting everything he ever wanted and becoming king. Yay! It's so boring. And it, and on top of that, it's just, really, it's just seven pillars of wisdom in space! Like, who, who cares? Um, but... If you add Dune Messiah as just the back third of a single book, which I hasten to add is how Frank Herbert actually wrote it and his publisher wanted to split it in twain. Hang on, I'm, I'm drinking some beer before I say this. If you read them, the two books as one book, it's a far different experience because Dune Messiah is about the slow unraveling of everything so like think about it kind of in the context of like the very archetypical archetypal traditional young man finds out he's the most special young man of all time and then he slowly gets everything he wants 
you know, he, he maybe has to fight for it. Maybe he goes through some trials, but he ends up being the most specialist in all the land and he gets all the everything and becomes the Messiah or whatever. And it, but then the course of Dune Messiah, all of that unravels and falls apart and it turns into this giant meditation and questioning on any hero worship ever any historical figure that we ever admire or put up on a pedestal anybody that we put up on a pedestal be they a religious figure a historical figure someone we know um <clears throat> and yeah i it's fantastic uh children of dune a little less so some weird space incest stuff and, you know, pretty. I kind of feel like Children of Dune was Frank Herbert getting all of the wrong feedback on what was good about Dune and Dune Messiah. Uh, and being like, oh, what, you want everything to be super trippy? All right. Well, it'll be super trippy now. Um, yeah, not that great. Uh, but yeah, the first two Dune books, highly recommend heavily awesome. I have a secret hope that when Denny Villeneuve's Dune Part 2 comes out, is that out yet? Is it coming out? When's it coming out? I don't know. I think it's coming out soon. Whenever that comes out, that secretly he's been making Dune and Dune Messiah and that Dune Part 2 is also going to include all the material in Dune Messiah. Oh, that would rule. Anyway. <clears throat> uh... I read a couple of books on ultralight uh, equipment this year because I'm always interested about that, learning about more uh, ultralight stuff. Uh, I read Ultralight Survival by Richard A. Thompson. I read Lighten Up by Don Ladigan. And I read Ultralight Survival Kit by Justin Lichter. The first book, uh, Ultralight Survival, is very much a survivalist, uh, bug out bag kind of guy writing it. He, I think the book, it was just a little ebook that I got my hands on. It was about a hundred pages and 15 to 20 of those pages were about gear and having a lighter pack. And then about 80 of the pages were about how to set up your AR-15 or sidearm to be lighter than you would think. Um, <laughs> so it's very much like a very particular kind of survivalist. I didn't get a lot out of it. Uh, I did learn a lot about guns. Um, that I didn't know before, but if you're looking for just like ultralight, um, survival type stuff, not really that great. Uh, the ultralight survival kit by Justin Lichter was much better. It's, uh, just tips and tricks and thoughts about ultralight camping and adventuring from a guy who has clearly done these things. Uh, the book also just like a little self-published ebook has a lot of photos in it of his various camping spots. And, um, you know, everywhere from the Himalaya to the Sahara to um, the Pacific Northwest, the Appalachian Trail. This guy's done a lot of this kind of stuff. And his thoughts are really interesting because there are some somewhat heavy, largish items that I just don't think of as being part of an ultralight kit that this guy seems to think are really important. Definitely worth checking out, especially if you're more of the, uh, the Don Ladigan uh, ultralight backpack and tips style of thought. Um, Lighten Up by Don Ladigan was definitely my favorite of the bunch. Uh, Don Ladigan is an old school ultralight backpacker. Uh, 
he's one of the he's credited as one of the people who really got the sport underway in its modern form. Um, I've mentioned many times on this podcast. I think it might be my favorite my, my favorite nonfiction book, Mike Clellan's Ultralight Backpack and Tips. I read that at least once a year, and uh, Mike Cleland did all the illustrations for Don Ladigan's Lighten Up. So it's a really really uh, wonderful collab, super fun, uh, and just like nice and cozy. I don't know. I I love Cleland's illustrations and Don Ladigan's prose is also super fun. And again, it's almost more of a philosophy book than a list of gear or a list of do's and don'ts. And we always need more of that, I think, in uh, in many of these uh, type of worlds. All right. This brings me to the final nine books. These are ones that I set aside in a slightly different spot on this list because I wanted to talk about them a little bit more or just because they were great. I don't think I really have extra things to say about these, but these were definitely my favorites um, or just kind of in the top there. So uh, first of all is Bunker by Bradley Garrett. This is a nonfiction book where he goes and meets uh, doomsday preppers and hangs out in their bunkers and tours their bunkers. And it's all about bunkers. Uh, one of the reasons I read those World Made by Handbooks was that they are mentioned numerous times by uh, Bradley Garrett in his writing in Bunker as kind of being indicative of a particular type of survivalist. It's interesting because he really seemed to be using them as kind of a dog whistle for right-winger um, kind of Trumpy survivalists in his book. And that was not the read that I got from reading the actual novels, The World Made by Hand. So th that was kind of an interest. That's just an interesting thing I noticed. But Bunker is a fantastic, rollicking read. Uh, some parts of it are very funny because uh, there's a lot of con men and shysters in that world as well. And a lot of, as I'm sure you can imagine, very quirky, interesting characters. Um, I got a copy of Bunker also from the Center for Land Use Interpretation in Culver City. I highly recommend going and visiting them or just check out their website. They have a really great website as well. Uh, next up is Freedom by Sebastian Junger. This is the author of The Perfect Storm and Tribe. And uh, this is one of those books that I think about a lot. Uh, I think about Sebastian Junger's writing quite a bit because he as a writer, has somehow managed to find a place of commonality, connection. He has somehow managed to bridge the, the two worlds of um, robust, outdoorsy, muscular, old-school masculinity with a thoughtful, modern, lefty, liberal sensibility, if that makes sense. Um, someone who is you know, pro-gay and trans rights and, and um, is thinking about things like income inequality and justice for immigrant populations and so on, but who also is very interested in going out and testing himself against the elements and sleeping under bridges and, and doing thousand mile illegal walks, trespassing on railroad property. Uh, I, yeah, I, his books are very compelling. They're also very short. Um, but he definitely seems to have arrived at this understanding that 
human beings need each other and we need to live in slightly adverse conditions in order to be able to help each other. Because if we're helping each other through adverse conditions, we feel useful and worthwhile. I think that might be kind of a good summation of Junger's big idea. Um, his books are always compelling and fascinating. I think about them for long after I finish reading them. And um, uh, Freedom, as well as his previous book, Tribe, were both books that as soon as I finished reading it, I reread it again from the beginning. They're only about 150 pages. They're not super long reads, but they're definitely worth uh, really digging into. At least I feel so. Um, because of that interesting ability to kind of bridge this what I perceive as a gap between, again, like a kind of traditional barrel-chested old-school masculinity and a much more modern uh, lefty sensibility. Hmm. Hmm. Yips. Uh, just got a few books left. Uh, I always appreciate you folks that stick with me through these lists. It's an interesting look back at my year and also just you can kind of see some of the things I'm thinking about. The book that most challenged me this year, I, every year I try to read a couple books that really challenge my outlook or my political leanings or whatever. And the definitely number one most challenging book on a political standpoint, not the most challenging book I read this year, but the most politically challenging was Woke Racism by John McWhorter. Yes, I read this book. I read the whole thing. I ran down some of his footnotes. Uh, my goodness, he makes a very compelling case. Um, and I, I'm not going to get into the specifics here, but the basic point that he is making is one that I have often felt as well, that liberal politics are often more concerned with having the right words or the right perception of opinion and not necessarily doing right by the people that they claim to care about a lot. Um, I think he goes, I think he has some very interesting interpretations on some basic facts that I don't agree with, but his main point that it's not enough to just say you care about people. You need to show up for them day after day. It's not enough to just go out and do one march. You need to think about long-term policies that will actually help people. Now, whether or not you agree with his interpretations of facts and figures and his proposed long-term policies, I think that driving ideal is very important. Um, this man is obviously a darling on the conservative right. Uh, and with good reason. He's a, he's a compelling writer. His prose is very crisp and he's a very clear communicator. Um, I can disagree with him point by point because he makes his points very clearly, which is something that a lot of academic writing and academic leaning writing is very bad at. Um, I can't really recommend the book. However, if you're interested in a uh, right of center look at things like... Um, incarceration rates in the United States or police violence against unarmed civilians. Um, this is definitely worth checking out um, because this is a John McWhorter is a black man who bucks a lot of trends and has some very different opinions. Um, it will definitely challenge yours if you have left of center politics, but I think uh, 
I think this is one of the worthwhile to engage with voices from the right, if that makes sense. Um, and definitely something that I had to chew on for quite a while. Uh, that being said, definitely worth uh, checking out if you're interested in these sorts of things. And uh, it will probably challenge you. I read several very challenging works of fiction this year. Um, one of them was Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. I'd never read it before. My goodness, what a thundering, towering achievement of a novel. It has some of the best uh, prose I've ever read. I understand why Cormac McCarthy is so popular. I also understand why so many of his other books that I've read have felt like pale imitations of something else. Like he is trying to get back to the pool where we all go down to drink to find the stories and he just never can quite make it back there. This is the book. Um, a friend of mine described this book as something that Cormac McCarthy found, not something that he wrote. And it definitely feels like that. In many ways, it feels like a it feels like someone wrote a book in the 1870s uh, but didn't have any of the cultural mores looking over their shoulder to prevent them from using certain words or referencing certain um, gross or disgusting or difficult to look at things. Really fantastic book. Um, disturbing, incredibly disturbing and deeply confusing. It's it's another thing that I finished reading and then I went back and reread the last couple of chapters several times to, to see if my confusion was because I'd missed something. Um, cannot recommend this highly enough. Uh, if you like Westerns, if you like dark fantasy, um, if you're looking for the best description of a wizard ever written, it's definitely the, uh, it's definitely the chapter on gunpowder that takes place about halfway through the book. Um, really fantastic. I am appalled that any idiot would ever want to try to make this into a film. It belongs only on the page. If a film is made, I don't think I would watch it. But then again, I, that's what I said about Lord of the Rings 25 years ago. And oh boy, howdy, did they somehow make something really worth watching. Uh... <laughs> Uh, wow, I'm, I'm really having a hard time choosing. Uh, okay. Uh, I read several books by Peter Watts this year. I already mentioned earlier that I read his earlier novel, Starfish, just as kind of a curiosity, an earlier book by an author I like. Uh, I also read his, he has two books that pair together called Blindsight and Echopraxia. But to call the books um, paired... It's a, in theory, Echopraxia is a sequel or a companion piece to Blindsight, but in the tradition of good authors not named George R.R. R. Martin, these don't have to be read in any particular order, and they both offer very satisfying openings, middles, endings, conclusions. They have very strong endings, both of them. They have very strong points being made. They really get somewhere. And... Um, I think Blindsight was the most difficult book I read this year uh, in terms of the level of prose that you're having to slog through, the confusingness of the narrative. Not, and never is the author being purposely confusing. It's just like the world that is being depicted is one that is difficult to understand. Just to give you an idea of the richness of this book, um, 
one of the characters in this science fiction novel has purposefully fractured her mind into like seven different personalities that are each running parallel in separate parts of the brain, which is um, super exotic and weird. But all of those personalities are having conversations with the main characters and the whoever is speaking is switching. And you're just supposed to keep track of the fact that all these voices are coming out of the same body because the other characters in the room don't have a problem with it. Um, and you would think that this would flow really poorly, but it doesn't. But it also makes it the kind of thing that rewards close attention. Um, yeah, it's a phenomenal book, Blind Sight. Uh, and it asks big questions about the meaning of human existence and our place in the universe and has some very startling, surprising answers, which makes sense given that the author is Peter Watts, who also has a collection of nonfiction essays called Peter Watts is an angry sentient tumor. And it was really fun as kind of like a little dessert after reading these two massive novels by him to read a collection of his nonfiction essays and just like allow his personality to sort of blast at me for a while off the printed page because uh, he's a highly entertaining man. He's, he's sort of like Alan Moore in the sense that he's very idiosyncratic, very proud of it, and will fight you on general principle about just about anything. Um, highly recommend. They, um, which, you know, that's part of why I went and read one of his, uh, his earlier books, just to kind of get a sense of where he came from, if that makes sense. The best thing about Blindsight and Echopraxia is that these are big idea, crazy, kooky science, no science fiction novels that include bibliographies and footnotes. So at the back of each book, he includes uh, uh, citations of the scientific papers which he has based his more exotic, ridiculous ideas on. So in other words, he's not just saying, yeah, this woman fractured her brain into seven personalities and all of them has a different speciality and they all work together in a system. He like links you to the most cutting edge neuroscience he had available at the time, which indicated that such things would be possible. It's really fantastic. And if you're the kind of nerd that I am, absolutely brain candy. Super fun, super great. If you were at all a fan of big idea science fiction, this is some of the best stuff that's come out in the last 20 years. Check it out. Um, it, 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 would, it takes something very powerful to, to knock Alistair Reynolds out of my top spot for currently publishing sci-fi authors, but this definitely did it. Check it out. Absolutely fantastic. Um, speaking of books that are difficult to talk about or even understand, based on a true story by Norm MacDonald, this is ostensibly a tell-all biography of a celebrity, Norm MacDonald. He of Saturday Night Live fame and several other, many, many other comedy projects. Um... And to, st to say anything more, I think, would be telling. I went into this almost blind, in entirely on the recommendation of a good friend, and was just blown away. The quality of the prose, the quality of the narration, the emotional states that it accesses, even, in a, even at its most fantastical and unbelievable, 
It's still speaking to some bigger truths about the human experience. And it is not at all what I would have expected from someone like Norm Macdonald. I think that's fair to say. Um, surprising and shocking and interesting and heartbreaking at times as well. Um, definitely worth checking out. And finally, the last book that I read this year, uh, I read this a couple days before my birthday, uh, is the first book I read in Norwegian without having to go get a dictionary and look up any words. So I'm very proud of this. Um, it took me, it took me about an hour, but oh boy, good, oh boy, howdy, was I, was I proud to have uh, made it through this book. This is Olivia by Ian Falconer. I read it in Norwegian. Uh, this is, of course, the uh, children's book from 2000. I believe it won the Caldecott Medal uh, about a young pig named Olivia and her adventures going to a museum and getting in trouble and just being a child, um, young child named Olivia. Uh, apparently it was based on the author and illustrator Ian Falconer's niece. Uh, yeah, but I read it in Norwegian, which is something that I am learning how to speak now. Uh, <laughs> looking at the time on this uh, recordion, this is the longest uninterrupted stretch of speaking English I have done um, in a long time. And... I'm looking forward to telling you more about that on the next episode, which will come up in a couple of days, uh, probably on New Year's Eve. So you'll have that to look forward to. I'll tell you a little bit about where I'm at, where I'm hoping to go, and uh, yeah, what's been going on. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the books, what I read this year. I I felt like I didn't read that many this year. I mean, I'm, I'm down from, I think my peak was uh, in 2021. I read a hundred and, was it 132 books or something like that? Um, 150 books? I can't remember this. I'm definitely down from my peak, but I also have spent a lot of time this year learning Norwegian, which tends to cut into one's reading time. So, uh... <laughs> I still think I did a, did a, did pretty good. As long as I can get at least one a week, we're, we're doing all right. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. As always, this podcast is produced with help from my fantastic supporters over at Patreon. To become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com slash strangely. Uh, I really appreciate all of you folks out there who have stuck with me through all the ups and downs of life. I, uh, have needed all kinds of things while I've been studying here in Norway. Things like uh, darning thread to fix my wool socks and new rain or new rainproof jacket to keep me from freezing to death while out sailing in hurricane conditions. And uh, I wouldn't have been able to buy that stuff without you as Patreon supporters. So thank you so much. And uh, yeah, I'll catch you all next time when I tell you a little bit about what's been going on. Until then, cheers.